Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians, and we are concluding this letter today. Uh, remarkably, we've moved through it fairly quickly, uh, and there's probably a lot more we could say, a lot more in-depth work we could do with this letter, uh, but that's okay. This is meant to be more of a survey and, and really something thematic and trying to understand the broader context of the book of Ephesians. We're talking about Christian identity. We're talking about not only being who we are inside, in the spiritual realm, but demonstrating that in the way we live. And the author here, which we, we presume to be Paul, uh, as he gives his name as such, though we know certainly other people may have had their hands in this letter, and it was passed around quite a bit. But uh, we see him laying out the argument that Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, the, the grace of God that was demonstrated through that, brought us into a relationship with God as adopted children, and we find our identity in that, and then we assimilate and live according to the the, the name, the family name, and the, uh, the expected uh, reputation and choices and behavior and obedience of one who claims to be a part of the family, not as a means of merit, but as a means of response. And from there, he talks about the unity that we find in Christ, that the unity of the body of believers is manifest through our salvation in Christ, that if we keep that at the forefront of our mind, we tend to treat each other better. And in chapter 5, which we talked about last time, we looked at, or at least the last part of chapter 5, we looked at how the, uh, the marriage relationship relates to our relationship as a church with Christ. And we tried to clarify some of the things in that language that might be a little bit troubling in today's culture about men being the head of households and women and such, uh, that we are under the uh, protection and love and development of Jesus Christ, just as husbands uh, protect and care for their wives. Uh, and now we move into chapter 6. Now, again, I want to be clear about something. Uh, two things, really. Number one, this letter is about how we interact with one another and, and the world as Christians. This is a letter about what the church is and how the church responds to the world in light of the sacrifice of Christ. This is not an instruction book full of rules for how we are to deal with marriage and how we are to deal with children and deal with other relationships. This is this is Paul using these relationships, using these things that are familiar to us to help us understand that which may be less familiar. So he talks about marriage because we know husbands and wives. And he says, now that relationship is like Christians and their Savior Jesus. So what you know about marriage, you must apply to your relationship with Christ. And Paul admits, now your relationship with Christ can definitely influence and inform the relationship with your spouse, but he's really clarifying there that he's giving an example. He's using relationships we understand as an example of a relationship that may be new to us, and that is our relationship with Christ. The point of the letter is to help us see our identity in Christ and let that drive how we live. A salvation that comes by faith and a justification that comes through grace but an obedience that comes through love and recognition of what that means. 
and that should change how we treat one another. It should change what churches look like. When we keep Jesus at the front of our mind, it makes us a better church. It makes us better Christians. And so I say that, uh, that first thing there, that remember that these descriptions and these relationships and these instructions are meant to help us understand the relationship we have with one another and with Jesus. Everything is driven by our identity in Christ. Everything. Uh, the second thing is that, as I always remind people, it was written uh, it was written for us, but not written to us. Okay, uh, we have to keep in mind the context it's written. So when we deal with things like marriage, men and women, husbands and wives, we come across things that our society today says that's not politically correct. And some of that we say you're right, it's cultural, and some of it we say it's spiritual. Uh, and here's why it means that. Today we're going to deal with a couple of things, and one of them will be particularly difficult. But let's begin in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, I want to, I want to address right off the bat, uh, chapter divisions, verse divisions, paragraphs, punctuation itself in Scripture, all added by translators, okay? It wasn't in the original. We did it to make it easier. Some of it we guessed at, some of it we got right, some of it we got wrong. But it's really important to sometimes back up and, and bridge those chapter divisions. Remember, he said in verse 32 of chapter 5, this mystery is great. He's talking about what he's trying to explain to them. He knows it's difficult material. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's saying the example of husbands and wives, I'm talking about Jesus and the church, okay? Don't get too far into the weeds. Now he does say in 33, nevertheless... Each individual among you is also also is to love his own wife as himself. The wife must see to she respects her husband. So he says, I'm using this example to talk about Christ and the church, okay? And it's hard to understand. Now, you guys need to be good to your spouse, absolutely, but the point is Christ and the church. So he kind of uh, kind of gives a little hint like, hey, I'm talking about this one thing using an example but it's good advice, but I'm, I mean to make an example. So then we move from there directly into the discussion of children. And so he's gone from marriage as an example of the relationship of Jesus and the church to practical advice that can be taken from that example about how to be better husbands and wives. Now he goes in what we call chapter 6 to talking about children. Children should obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. If you remember in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother falls kind of right there in the middle, and it says that honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you may live long. Um, this is the first commandment uh, with a promise because it's of the, of the do not do's. It's the first one that says here's some practical reward. Here's some practical benefit to not... To, to doing this, um, to, to, to honoring your father and mother. It's also the first one that isn't a don't. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And then we get to, you know, the Sabbath and, the, and honoring your parents. And they're positives. Do these things, okay? Um, there are a lot of things you can violate in God's law and God's will that won't cause you any real consequence, you know, in this life. Maybe some. But... Dishonoring parents is one that the Bible says comes with a promise that your life will be better if you honor your parents. And verse 3 says, quoting, 
so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. That's the promise, the promise that comes from the Ten Commandments. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, why are we talking about this? I thought we were talking about Christ and the church. Yes. In chapter 5, as Paul transitions from talking about how Christ's salvation, Christ's blood, the cross has changed our life and should change our behavior and change our relationships, he brings up that wives and husbands are a relationship that mirror and parallel in many ways Christ and the church. So he makes an example. And in making that example, he also gives instruction. So make your marriages look like your relationship with Christ and understand your relationship with Christ in the same way you understand your marriages. That's why in 32 and 33, he says, you know, I'm talking about this one thing, but this is also good marital advice. And so he bounces off that to say, and also while we're on the subject, children, you need to honor your parents. And parents, don't exasperate your children, okay? Don't, don't make life harder for them than it has to be. Do not provoke your children to anger. Don't, don't abuse your position. I don't mean abusing children. I mean abuse the position. Don't cause harm. Don't cause trouble. Don't, um, don't create an unfair situation. Bring your children up in discipline and instruction, but do not frustrate them. Have you ever seen a child that's just frustrated, you know, and, and someone's trying to tell them what to do and tell them how to do it, and, and they just need a break. They just need a break. Um, Paul is giving some good advice here, okay? He's saying that our earthly relationship should reflect the fact that we have a relationship with the Father, whether that be in our churches as as fellow Christians, or whether that be in our in our uh, spousal relationships, marital relationships, we always keep the cross in mind. We always keep what Jesus did for the church in mind, and that's what husbands and wives ought to do. And as parents, we must keep in mind who we are, what our identity is. That will change the way we parent. And now, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Oh my goodness. Uh, there is no doubt. We live in a world uh, today, and particularly in, in Western democracies, where slavery is not acceptable. For centuries, it has been the, the momentum of our country to say that slavery is an immoral and horrible, inhumane thing. Now, in the history of the world, in the context of the completeness of world history, the idea that slavery is immoral and wrong and sinful represents a very small percentage of the philosophy of world history. The great, vast majority of cultures, nations, and empires on this earth throughout its history have engaged in the trade and practice of slavery. Enslaving other peoples and subjugating other nations has been the norm in history. The United States and other countries that have abolished slavery and have fought that war and have, um, have overcome that great, uh, horrible act 
those nations represent a minority. They are the exception, not the rule. We have to remember that. And we have to remember that Paul lived in a time where slavery was very real. And not only was slavery real, but, but you know, and, and slavery is a broad term. They're indentured servitude of some kind. Um, but the subjugation of a human being to another, the ownership of a human being by another. Very real concept back then. Not necessarily seen as a sinful concept back then. Uh, and we have to accept that that was the truth that they lived in. That was the world they lived in. There are some who will read what we're about to read and say, oh, Paul was wrong about slavery. Well, yes, by our standard. Again, don't read yourself into it. It's very easy to read this and go, well, we don't have to pay attention to that because we don't have slavery and that was wrong and Paul was immoral for... No, remember this was written for us but not to us, okay? Don't put yourself into their context and don't put them into your context. Remember that slavery was a real thing. It was viewed very differently back then than it is now. Uh, the immorality of it, the sinful nature of it, the evil of it, that's come along in the last few hundred years. It had not come along yet. And it was a generally accepted practice even amongst Christians. And we have to live with that and we have to be okay with that because we need to listen to the words of God coming through the voice of Paul. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. And not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. He's saying, look, the situation you find yourself in may not be ideal. It may not be good. It may be hard. You need to think of every action and every relationship as though you are working for the Lord. In Scripture, we see that concept repeated many, many times. The work we do, the effort we give, the love we show, the actions we take must be with God in mind. We do nothing of our own volition or for selfish interest. We don't do it to be seen of other people. We don't give lip service. We give everything we have for the one who gave everything for us. That's what Ephesians is about. Ephesians is about being purchased, being bought, being owned by God through Christ. We are owned by God. And it's not in an onerous, um, abusive way. It's a security. It's a safety. It's a peace. We belong to someone. We belong to him. We are owned by God. And the, this, these six chapters of Ephesians are all about how does that change the way you live? How does it change the way you think of yourself? How does it change the way you treat others? How does it change the way the church works? If we remember we are owned by God, we were bought at a price. Don't get tripped up by the fact that he's talking about slavery like it's no big deal, okay? We figured that out eventually. Society, culture, um, philosophy, all of that got to a point where we saw this is not a way to live. This is not a humane way to handle relationships. Paul lived in a time where that concept would have been so foreign to him they wouldn't have been able to grasp it. 
slavery was accepted and normal, and that relationship existed. And in that context, he gives instructions for how Christians should live because our obligation to Christ is not determined by the relationships and the status we have on earth. Our obligation to Christ is ultimate. It is above all else. It does not change based on our circumstance. So if you find yourself in slavery, Paul says, then be obedient and work hard for your master. Be a good slave because you represent something. You represent a soul purchased by God with the blood of Christ. So you will work hard and you will be thorough and you will not give lip service. You will be an example of faithfulness. We see examples in scripture. Think of Philemon. Uh, the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon was, um, was based on an incident that occurred where a slave named Onesimus had fled slavery. And we would say good for him. Uh, we believe in emancipation. He fled to Paul and Paul said, you need to turn around and go right back to your master because Onesimus was a Christian and Philemon was a Christian. They were two Christians, but they had this relationship of slave and master. That was the norm of the time. And Paul said, because that is the norm of the time, because this is the law and this is our context, you honor that as a child of God. Onesimus, be a Christian slave. Philemon, be a Christian master. And here in Ephesians, we see that slaves are to be obedient, they are to be sincere, they are to be respectful, they are to be hard workers. But in verse 9, it says, Masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So the instruction to the master is, stop, stop being overbearing. Don't threaten. There's no need because your real master is God, and their real master is God. And so you are both equal. This is a message of equality in a time of slavery. And we can look at it, we can throw our hands up, and we can, we can shake our fists that there's this terribly politically incorrect passage in Scripture and that Paul seems to endorse the act of slavery. It seems that Paul endorses the idea of equality. Now, in a world, we still struggle with equality today, and we fight over it, and we protest over it, we march over it. Equality, and what does that mean, and what does that look like? Well, let me tell you something. If you want to go to the biblical definition, you will get to equality much faster. You will get to fairness and justice and kindness and goodness and love much faster if you seek it through Scripture rather than legislation and, and policy. Because here he says, if you, the master, recognize that your master is in heaven and their true master is in heaven, then both of you serve the same master. It's neither of you, and you're both equal. Now, they have a master-slave relationship. There's no doubt about it. But to the slave, he says, be a Christian slave. And to the master, he says, be a Christian master. And above all, both parties should look to heaven, where the source of all power lies, and find that they are remarkably equal by that standard. And while they may fulfill their obligations, their earthly obligations to one another, they both strive together in meeting the obligations spiritually of a heavenly master and a heavenly father. These are hard things, Ephesians. These are hard things to understand. These are challenging passages because we talk about marriage and parenthood and and societal roles. And a lot of those things have changed over the generations. 
sense. And we have to find a way to put that context into our context, not our context into theirs. We have to find a way to take that, bring it forward to where we are and say, what does it mean? And it's probably a lot less about the literal application so much as it is about the lesson that we are Christians and in this world we live as Christians, no matter what. Um, okay, we're going to finish the last probably five, uh, five uh, 15 verses or so of, um, of Ephesians next time. It's the end of chapter 6, and we're going to talk about the armor of God and how we go to battle in this world. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next time.